Welcome to the Rebel Core Content Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckensmay. Swami, I heard about a really interesting case recently. It wasn't one of mine, unfortunately, but it was so interesting that it made me want to read about it. It was a patient with myxedema coma, not something I have ever actually seen in real life, or at least that I think I have not seen in real life. But I thought it would be a great thing to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is rare. It's uncommon. And that last point you said, I don't think I've seen it. Uh, I have seen it, which also means I probably missed it a bunch of times, too. Yep, exactly. I think after reading about it more that I have probably missed it. (laughs) Okay, I already gave away the diagnosis, but because it's really rare and exciting, I didn't want you to have to think about it. But let me give you a little bit of the case. So so this was an elderly patient who was presenting from a nursing facility without medical records, because let's face it, that's all too often the case. The patient was altered, hypotensive, bradycardic, and profoundly hypothermic. Off the bat, it seems like your run-of-the-mill sepsis patient. Perhaps you would typically expect some more tachycardia, but without a medication list, we often kind of assume our elderly patients are on beta blockers and kind of explain away their lack of compensation with tachycardia for their hypotension. This patient was also noted to have some hypoventilation with kind of some gurgling respiratory sounds. In fact, the person described it as sounding like this. All in all, not great. I think sepsis is going to be the first thing that comes to all of our minds. I also would be considering other causes of shock, of course. So MI leading to cardiogenic shock would be high on my list as well. Hypotension and bradycardia is a relatively short list to consider, Jenny. Blood in the belly causing a vagal response. We typically see that in younger patients. Beta blocker or calcium channel blocker toxicity. Clonidine toxicity can cause it. And of course, neurogenic shock. But we don't really have a a good scenario here for neurogenic shock. Uh, Obviously, an ECG would be really helpful in teasing out that cardiogenic shock from an MI. Also, it would be helpful in beta blocker and calcium channel blocker toxicity potentially. Either way, we clearly Really need an ECG, and we need to keep a bit of a broad differential as well. Yeah, absolutely. The ECG, uh, I was told, was not terribly, terribly remarkable. It was maybe a little wider complex than normal, but nothing outrageous and bradycardic. But there were certainly no STEMI or major changes on the EKG. The team in this case, I think, probably had a very similar differential to what you just said and started treating the patient for sepsis. But I think they were tipped off that it might be a little more complicated than just your basic sepsis because the patient's core temperature was really, really low, less than 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And the patient was coming from indoors and in the summertime. So there really was no excuse for them to be that cold, you know, nothing environmental. We can see temperatures that low in sepsis alone, but to them, I think it seemed just too extreme attempt for sepsis alone. Yeah, I think there definitely is sepsis with hypothermia, but it's typically like 94 degrees, 93 and a half degrees. When you're getting down to 88, 89, yes, sepsis might still be at play, but again, I'm going to have to start thinking about some other things. In this case, I think that is a nice tip off, a nice take home. When a patient's that cold and there's not a good reason to be that cold, Think about thyroid disease. Myxedema coma is defined as severe hypothyroidism, leading to decreased mental status, hypothermia, and other symptoms that are related to the slowing of the function of just basically all of your organs. It's a medical emergency with a high mortality rate, ranging from 30 to 60%. It's important to know that the term myxedema coma is really a misnomer because patients may exhibit neither the non-pitting edema, known as myxedema, nor a coma. So really the main thing here that you need to be looking for is a deterioration in the patient's mental status. So this term myxedema coma, I like it because it sounds bad and it makes us scared of it, but it can really kind of mislead people.
Yeah, I think decompensated hypothyroidism or even severe hypothyroidism are probably better names, but maybe it doesn't strike as much fear in our hearts and that's part of the issue. Hypothyroidism is four times more common in women than in men, so it stands to reason that we are more likely to see mixed edema coma in women, and that's exactly what happens. About 80% of cases of mixed edema are going to occur in women. It's almost exclusively a disease of older patients, generally occurring over 60 years of age. And interestingly, more than 90% of the cases are going to occur in the winter months, and perhaps that is due to age-related difficulty with body temperature regulation, particularly in patients with hypothyroidism. Mixed hematoma can be the presentation in a patient with severe, long-standing, undiagnosed, or poorly managed hypothyroidism, or it can be found in patients with known hypothyroidism who are suffering from some precipitating event. So usually that's sepsis or an infection, but also, of course, could be due to things like an MI, cold exposure, surgery, or even just the administration of sedating medications, particularly opiates. When a patient presents with mixed edema coma, they're going to have decrease in mental status, but this can be subtle. It doesn't have to be a frank coma. It can just be minor changes in mental status. They're just a little bit off of their baseline. And hypothermia, again, is going to be fairly common, although it's not going to be seen in every patient. You may also find hypotension, bradycardia, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, and hypoventilation. The classic mixed edema refers to puffiness of the hands and the face, a thickened nose, swollen lips, and enlarged tongue, and these are due to non-pitting edema of these locations. Jenny, I'm going to admit to you, I have never seen this non-pitting edema in a patient with severe hypothyroidism. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Like you said, when evaluating these patients, you may find hypoglycemia. This may be caused by hypothyroidism alone or may be due to simultaneous adrenal insufficiency due to an autoimmune adrenal disease or hypothalamic pituitary disease. We'll talk about this in a second when we get to treatment. You may also find hyponatremia. This could be due to impairment in free water excretion due to inappropriate excess vasopressin secretion or impaired renal function, or again, it could be due to that adrenal insufficiency. As we mentioned before, hypothermia is a common presentation for these patients. It's important to know a couple of things about this. First, a lot of thermometers have a hard time registering hypothermic patients, so just be aware of the shortcoming of our devices. And second, the degree of hypothermia is thought to relate to the mortality in severe hypothyroidism, so the lower the temperature, the more likely the patient's going to die. Temperature plays a role in treatment as well. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And Jenny, I think this is just one more reason why we need to get real temperatures, meaning if the patient's sick, get a rectal temp. Absolutely. Even if the patient's you're suspecting you're going to find a fever, the oral temp is just often not accurate at all. Hypoventilation with the resulting respiratory acidosis is due primarily to central depression of the ventilatory drive with decreased responsiveness to hypoxia and hypercapnia. If these patients require airway management, you should know that this can be complicated by mixedemnous changes of the pharynx, making for an airway that is more difficult than you originally predicted. We always say predict that every airway is going to be difficult, but predict that this one might be extra difficult. And of course, we know that thyroid hormone plays a role in blood pressure homeostasis. Decompensated hypothyroidism, again, is going to feature things like bradycardia, decreased myocardial contractility, low cardiac output, and often hypotension. When you suspect this diagnosis, you should send blood for TSH, free T4, and cortisol levels, none of which come back very quickly in my department. If they do come back for you, the free T4 is usually very low, but the TSH can be variable. It may be high, indicating primary hypothyroidism, or it may be low, 
normal, or slightly high, indicating central hypothyroidism. So I wouldn't rely on this test to make your diagnosis. In most of our departments, this diagnosis has to be made on clinical suspicion alone. When labs come back later, they're going to either confirm or refute your diagnosis. And of course, this is the really tricky part, Jenny, right? We can't rely on the labs to give us that diagnosis. Even if we have the right diagnosis, even if the lab can turn around the TSH and T4 quickly, sometimes the TSH isn't going to be where we think it's going to be, especially in that immediate circumstance of the disease. So we really have to be very careful of relying on those things. And I don't know exactly what the best way is to be tipped off to this diagnosis. We always have to be thinking about it in all of our sick patients. Obviously, if the patient's very cold, like your patient was, then yeah, we have to think about severe hypothyroidism. Maybe that's going to set up some bells and whistles. Any altered mental status, I would think about it. Obviously, if the patient has a big surgical scar across their neck, that's a good place to think about hypothyroidism as well. We have to look for these clues, but just the fact that it is at the forefront of our brain is going to help us to make that diagnosis. We also have to remember that myxedema coma is usually precipitated by some other event. Infection is going to be the most common thing, so you're going to want to perform a complete sepsis workup. Honestly, once I've got my cultures, I would just go ahead and cover them with broad-spectrum antibiotics as well. And that, of course, brings us to treatment. And as you said, when we suspect this diagnosis, you really shouldn't wait for those labs to confirm. We're going to start with aggressive treatment, and that should be started as soon as possible because it takes a while for our treatments to work in these patients. The first step in treatment is actually the treatment of a suspected adrenal insufficiency. Here, you should promptly give stress dose steroids such as 100 milligrams IV hydrocortisone. And I think most people would agree with that and say you don't have to wait for the cortisol. Don't rely on seeing hyperkalemia and hyponatremia to confirm the diagnosis of adrenal insufficiency. Just go ahead and treat. The mainstay, of course, in treatment is going to be thyroid hormone replacement. While we all recognize that we have to replace the thyroid hormone once we have this diagnosis, the exact way to do it remains a little controversial, probably because the disease entity is so rare, there's no big studies looking at whether we should give T3, whether we should give T4, or what the best combination is. T3 is more biologically active. T4 has to be converted to T3 in order to be active. And that T4 to T3 conversion is going to be suppressed when the patient has myxedema coma. This has led some to argue that we should replace with T3, but T3 is more expensive, it's not available in all places, and it is associated with increased risk of complications like cardiac dysrhythmias and increased mortality. So we have to be very careful with what we're using. Ultimately, it seems like the recommendations are a little mixed. It seems like everyone recommends replacing T4 with an initial IV dose of levothyroxine at 100 to 500 micrograms, with that lower range of dosing preferred in lighter patients or older patients, in those patients who are at risk for cardiac complications such as MI or arrhythmia. Some experts recommend simultaneously administering T3 at a dose of 5 to 20 micrograms, but some prefer a regimen of the levothyroxine alone. I think if I was in this circumstance, I would give the levothyroxine and get my endocrine and ICU consults on the phone and decide on T3 as a team. I think that's a really good approach to it. I'll be honest with you. I've never given T3 in the emergency department. And part of that is just due to availability. T4 is what we had on hand. With T4, again, it is going to take some time for that to work. So then the key is going to be on focusing on supportive care while you wait for that drug to become active and have its effects. If the patient's hypotensive, start resuscitation with fluids, but I would reach for vasoactive substances pretty early. These patients often have bad cardiac function to begin with, and then on top of that, they've got this myxedema coma, and so volume overload is going to be a real problem. 
If they're hypothermic, the best way is to passively rewarm them as active rewarming can actually increase vasodilation and that can lead to worsening hypotension. As the T4 kicks in, the hypothermia is going to improve on its own. And of course, remember to treat that precipitating event. So like you said earlier, quick, broad antibiotics in a septic patient or probably any patient because sepsis is likely happening. And of course, don't forget that ECG. Look for that MI. Look for the dysrhythmia as that's another common causative event. Jenny, how about some take-home points? Of course. First, mixed edema coma is severe, decompensated hypothyroidism with a very high mortality. Second, classic features include decreased mental status, hypothermia, hypotension, bradycardia, hyponatremia, hypoglycemia, and hypoventilation. Basically, just everything is depressed. Third, workup includes looking for and treating precipitating causes, most commonly infection or MI, as well as serum levels of TSH, T4, and cortisol. Fourth, treat for the possibility of adrenal insufficiency with stress-dose steroids such as hydrocortisone 100 mg IV. And last, the exact means of thyroid replacement is controversial. Definitely give 100 to 500 micrograms of levothyroxine and discuss the simultaneous administration of T3 with your endocrine and ICU teams. That's all for the Rebel Core Content Podcast this week. Jenny and I will be back in two weeks for another podcast. If you want to check out more from Rebel EM, hop on over to the site at rebelem.com for all of our posts from our amazing team. 